0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. The Streams of Winter,
2: live stream 26. Daenerys Targaryen.
1: Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy. And we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about one of the most iconic characters in this whole saga. She began the story as chattel, sold off to a horse lord by her own brother, but has since claimed a crown and attempted to turn the slave trade upside down. It's Daenerys Targaryen, everyone. Through the story, Danny seeks to overcome the disadvantages of a youth... Oppose oppressive forces in Essos and gain power for herself, with the long-term goal of one day reclaiming the Iron Throne for House Targaryen. However, leadership in this story is never easy, and her tenure as Queen of Marine has been fraught with problems. So how has Danny's past informed her current ethos? How will she resolve her problems in Marine? And where should she land in Westeros when she's finally ready to fight for the throne? These, of course, are huge questions. And so to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hey,
2: everyone. Thank you for being here. Happy to be back on the live streams and to talk about Danny today. And very happy to uh, welcome today's guest to the stream, and with many thanks for being with us, it's Maester Mary from Learned Hands
3: Podcast. Hey, welcome. Hi y'all. I'm so happy to be here. You guys uh, are just such a the most important podcast in my heart and uh, I'm, I'm really happy happy to get to talk about Danny with y'all.
2: Well, we are glad you could be here. and this is a this is a very big topic. And uh, we're going to do our best <laughs> to tackle it here over the next hour or so. So, uh, why don't we uh, throw it back over to you, Yoke Boy? Get us started.
1: Yeah, so I've cooked up a dozen questions or so to help us analyze Danny's early story leading up to uh, where she currently is. And then we're going to look ahead to where she might be in The Winds of Winter. So, to begin, I'll throw out the first question to you guys. Daenerys Targaryen's early life was extremely d- difficult. Her mother died in childbirth and she was immediately taken into exile for her own safety. When her protector, Sir William Darry, died, Danny and her brother, Viserys, lived in poverty on the run, even selling their mother's crown. So how have Dany's early formative years shaped her internal world? World, sorry, Lady Gwynne, why don't you take us away?
2: Well... You now, as with most exiles, Danny's hunger for home really becomes a defining characteristic, even though it's a hunger for a home that she never really knew. Similarly, as with many orphans, she's got that desire for family. Again, she didn't know much of her family. Viserys was the only family that she had or knew for most of her life. And she came to realize how deeply imperfect he was at a fairly young age. And so when she gains a small amount of agency in A Game of Thrones, she starts to surround herself with people that she chooses. People like Jorah and her handmaids, her blood riders, eventually Arstan, Strong Belwest, Grey Worm, Miss Andi. These are all people that she kind of collects to form a core group of companions. And I think that's kind of her substitute family. But, you know, in spite of the fact that this little khalasar, relieves some of her loneliness and fills in that gap a little bit. I think she remains keenly aware that she's the last Targaryen, which is why hearing about and eventually, I suppose, meeting Aegon and even Jon Snow are going to be absolutely huge for her. Hugely conflicting as well, for obvious reasons. But the fact is both of those men will ultimately represent family to her. And that is going to be really important to her arc going forward.
3: Yeah, I think what breaks my heart so much about Danny, and even in these chapters in dance is how much she yearns for safety because she grew up without it. And at times it feels like she doesn't ever believe she will have it. She must put the needs of seemingly everyone else before herself, except when it comes to Dario. She can have a little Dario as a treat, um, but looming large in her dream of safety is the red door. It's in six out of ten of Danny's chapters in Dance, uh, and this temporary refuge in Bravos that becomes the the symbol for the story that Danny still has to tell herself about her past. the The red door becomes Danny's version of Gatsby's green light. That idealized memory of love and in Danny's case, safety and belonging that she yearns for but never had. One example of how this shapes her internal world and creates her need to protect the innocent is Danny's desire to protect Misande. After the Sons of the Harpy murder Masande's brother Massador, Danny offers to send Masande home to Noth. And then there's this exchange that absolutely chokes me up every time. Masande says, I would sooner stay with you. On Nath, I would be afraid. What if the slavers came again? I feel safe when I'm with you. And Danny thinks, safe. The word made Danny's eyes fill up with tears. I want to keep you safe. Masande was only a child. With her, she felt as if she could be a child too. No one ever kept me safe when I was little. Well, Sir Willem did, but then he died. And Viserys. I want to protect you, but it's so hard to be strong. I don't always know what I should do. I must know, though. I am all they have. I am the queen. Ah, it's just, it's so, it's so gut-wrenching to me, um and it's just every time Danny fails to protect the innocent it's she's reliving this trauma because it's as if she's failing to protect herself and reliving the helplessness of her childhood and her fear of being nothing more than a weak girl and yeah i mean i i can't help but but get choked up thinking about this
2: yeah same and i just i want to just comment that i love the fact that you brought gatsby's green light into this because my favorite book and also one of George's favorite books, so very perfect. I could imagine him thinking of that while he was writing about this. That's the the color imagery, right? So yes, yeah. absolutely.
1: Yes, yeah, so you both make great points and. It's clear that Danny suffered early trauma by having no true sense of home. And as Mary said, her perception of what home actually is is somewhat warped and revolves around fragmented and idealised half-memories. One factor which no doubt exacerbated the pain of being an exiled princess who could have had it all but in fact has nothing is the continual presence of her brother Viserys, whose bitterness cruelty and entitlement runs deeply enough to make him a thoroughly unlikable and unstable character. It must have been extremely difficult in circumstances which were already very painful to be parented by an older brother with so little regard for anything but himself. Danny, of course, has the genuine sense of empathy lacking in her brother and as such the two siblings seem ostensibly to be polar opposites. Her internal world was partially shaped by his viciousness and we can imagine much of her initial frailty and fear came from her dependence on him through her childhood. His behaviour was a lesson to Danny on how not to behave so in this, in this respect she was learning from his shortcomings and consciously trying to not to emulate him. She used the fear instilled in her as the fuel to drive her forward and adapt and change into a character ready to harness great power. However, aside from the obvious differences between the siblings, there are some similarities with the pair that are sometimes overlooked. Viserys was a highly ambitious character who, in spite of being misguided, was determined to seize power and reclaim the power over Westeros that was lost when his father was dethroned and killed in Robert's Rebellion. Viserys... Instilled this deep fear in Danny, yet he also taught her, inadvertently or not, that the Iron Throne was worth fighting for. Danny now believes it's her destiny and her right to conquer Westeros and reclaim the power she feels is rightfully hers. And perhaps Viserys is responsible for this feeling of entitlement. Danny and Viserys may be very very different, but their drive to reinstate House Targaryen as as the leading house is ultimately a commonality shared by both. And I want to take some of this focus on Viserys and carry it over into the next question. At the beginning of A Game of Thrones, Danny is meek compared to the domineering personality of her ambitious brother. He is so fixated on regaining power that he effectively sells her off to Khal Drogo for an army. How has the trauma of being completely disempowered and sold to a stranger informed her current ethos? Mary, why don't you start us off?
3: Yeah, I think Viserys, who you emphasized so well, sucks so terribly, has nourished her in a very toxic way on the Iron Throne as the inevitable birthright of the Targaryen dragons. And Viserys kind of megalomania, it catches Danny in between her simple dream of safety, which is symbolized by the red door, and her brother's feeling of entitlement to power. That's the Iron Throne. And I think both of those feelings are ways she copes with the instability of not having a place to belong and feeling disempowered. Um, but I think much of the trauma of Danny's childhood is that who she is, being born as a dragon, that also made her hunted and unsafe. I mean, this literally killed her family and took her home. But at the same time, her brother is telling her that being a Targaryen is supposed to make at least him powerful, the hunter instead of the hunted. And she is powerless against Viserys, supposedly he's, uh, who is supposedly her protector and her only family. Viserys abuses her and justifies it with, you don't want to wake the dragon. He declares he's the only real dragon. So I think for Daenerys, the trauma of her early loss and loneliness and fear become inseparable from the legacy of the Targaryen dynasty into which she's born. Her exchange with Barristan about, you know, what she believes is the universal guilt of the usurper's dogs is is an example of how this affects her psyche. She has internalized the trauma of being hunted, and her gut reaction is the merciless reaction of a predator, the assertion of her newfound power. To be sure, she has dissonance about it, but this visceral instant reaction, I mean, that is Danny dancing with her trauma, not only with the ghosts of people she never knew, her dead family and their killers. But she's also dancing with the ghost of someone she knew all too well, the abusive brother that taught her to think that way. And that is a violent and unstable darkness that her noble desire to protect others is constantly fighting against.
1: Great points. And Visery selling Danny off to further his own ambitions, I think, was a great personal betrayal, as Mary has outlined so well. He shows no amount of sympathy toward her as she sends her forth into a truly terrifying situation. At this stage, Danny is a passive character in that everyone around her is making decisions on her behalf and all she can do is react to them. She has no control over her own destiny. However, in spite of the great insecurity and tremendous suffering, this is an important stage of her character growth. Danny is learning firsthand what it is like to be human chattel and perhaps we can view what happens when she reaches Slaver's Bay to be a reaction to the very moment her brother traded her in for his own ambitions. But even before all of that major conflict, there's evidence that an anti-slavery stance paired with her great empathy had been growing inside of her th- through her early story. In A Game of Thrones, Danny stands up to the Dothraki traditions when she attempts to defend innocent Lazarene girl Eroa from unspeakable brutality. No doubt Danny recognised the terror of being absolutely disempowered from her, her own experiences, and Danny uses whatever power she had gained to put a stop to it. Once again, Danny's character growth is and system of values relates to Viserys mistreatment of her. Danny uses the pain of her misfortune and poor treatment to change and ultimately overcome her obstacles. And I think that's why so many readers love her character. Going from chattel to Queen of marine in the space of a few books is a lightning quick ascent, but one which feels earned.
2: Yeah, it really does. And I think you guys both made very good points. Dany's empathy with those who suffer slavery is obviously a key theme in her arc. And to take off on that, her statement in A Storm of Swords, a dragon is no slave, is about so much more than signaling to the slavers of Marine that her dragons are not for sale. Daenerys Targaryen is declaring to the world that she is no longer a slave. She's not to Viserys, not to Drogo, not to fear, not to expectations, she becomes empowered in that moment, perhaps even more than when she came out of the fire with her hatchlings. She's then hunted by assassins, sold off to Drogo, as you said. She was declared the mother of the stallion who mounts the world, really without her consent or knowing anything about what that might entail. She experienced the terror of uh, her husband's death and the breakup of the Kalisar and the passage through the Red Waste, that entire bizarre stay in Karth then was sent for by Illyrio to return and become part of whatever his master plan is in all of these things, right through a storm of swords, she's essentially a pawn. Uh, She's, she's learned how, you know, she's gained some agency, but she's still being kind of pushed and pulled this way and that Uh, she never really resists because that's what she was raised to be a princess who's going to be, you know, sold off to achieve her brother's, ambitions but there in astapor she seized upon something that gave her the agency to say no more from that point on though we'll as we'll see she still has struggles and responsibilities and she's forced to compromise at times she really does things on her own terms going forward in short she becomes a player
1: Excellent. I like like that wording because it's something that comes up in the Sansa analysis quite often, and it's nice to sort of transfer that analysis and make some parallels with uh, Sansa and Daenerys there, the pawn-to-player idea. And on to the next question, in A Storm of Swords... Danny makes a play for power by marching through Slaver's Bay and aggressively uprooting the status quo. At this stage in her story, she is pulling no punches and is conquering at every turn. So I want to want to talk about Danny as a conqueror. How do we rate her an assessor? What do you say, Mary?
3: It's such a good question because I think a central theme of Danny's arc is how much she fits within the model of a conqueror. In Slaver's Bay, Danny's not a typical conqueror. She's not trying to build an empire like, say, Alexander the Great. Yet she's certainly perceived as a conqueror by the people her armies and dragons threaten, from Miri Mazdur to the Maronese masters and Zarozo and Doxos. But the legacy of both her Valerian blood and the Iron Throne, they're inseparable from conquest. She compares herself to Aegon the Conqueror, as does Barristan. The Dothraki hail her unborn son as the stallion who mounts the world. Um, But Danny's goals in Slaver's Bay are both different from and more than that. In uprooting the status quo and choosing to rule marine, she wants to liberate and smash the slave trade more than she wants to hold the land or build an empire. From a modern perspective, I'll admit it's hard to deny that promising freedom and liberation are great propaganda points for would-be conquerors. Um, and to her strategic credit, they're ones that Daenerys uses often to great military and political effect. But we have a glimpse into Daenerys' heart and mind, and we know these are goals that she earns for, yearns for earnestly. So, to assess Danny's military and political successes and failures in Slaver's Bay... Well, we have to start with her victory conditions. Danny wants justice, and that is much harder than conquest. To when she can't do what conquerors before her have done, she cannot build an empire on the backs of slaves like Valeria or ancient Rome. So So Daenerys forges her own path. And while there's much room for criticism, I think she does a remarkable job of learning from her mistakes, even when she fails. A large part of why she stays in Marine, I think, is the tragedy that while she liberated the unsullied, she did not liberate Astapor, and that failure weighs on her conscience. She has created a thousand eroas, she thinks, when she thinks about the butchery in Astapor, and that's a large part of why she stays in Marine. If she takes, for example, Zara's thirteen ships or Quentin's offer of Dornish spears. She loses and her people die and become enslaved again. So what kind of conqueror is she? Is she a dragon or a mysa? A stallion who saves the world or one who merely mounts it? That's the conflict by which Danny judges herself, and that is her crucible in Wins.
2: Yes, I couldn't agree more with the importance of that dichotomy in Danny's arc, especially going forward. Similarities between Danny as a conqueror and her famous ancestor, for instance, are pretty clear. Probably don't have to talk about um, too much about the similarities between Danny and Aegon. The main difference is that Aegon had a vision, whereas Danny's always reacting against something. Even if it's kind of a long reaction, what she's doing so far is uh, reacting against something. Even you know, her desire to go back to Westeros is more of a, a reaction to a force that has been exerted on her life. Aegon saw a fractured Westeros. He wanted to make it whole. And he even had a moment when it seemed like he might have tried to accomplish that through diplomacy. Arjalak Durandon spoiled that option. Um, I think that Danny's treatment of the Astapori slavers honestly has more in common with Archilac cutting the hands off of Aegon's emissary than with Aegon's treatment of the lords of Westeros, per se. Although there was the Field of Fire, (laughs) and to be sure, there is a great deal of difference between slavers and quarrelsome lords and petty kings. But I think you know we can't deny that Dany is very clever and she's figured out how to use guile and strategy to achieve her goals. But there's one thing that she's failed at after that first confrontation in Astapor, and that's using her force multipliers to her advantage. Her squeamishness on that point really plays against her hugely in A Dance with Dragons and lands her in the Shadow War with the Sons of the Harpy. Uh, you can be sure, at least not that we've ever heard of, that Aegon didn't face that sort of any sort of resistance like this because he used his... Admittedly, larger and well controlled dragons, effectively. The lesson for Danny then is that if you want to conquer, you've got to go all in, like Aegon did, uh, which really comes down to that same conflict Mary mentioned. Danny has to choose between being a mother and being a dragon. Everything in A Dance with Dragons seems to be tilting her towards that choice and towards choosing dragon, in fact, fire and blood. But she's Not quite there yet. She's almost there. I think that early wins will be about her resolving the cognitive dissonance about who and what she is, and why she's doing the things she's doing.
1: Excellent. And personally, I find assessing Danny as a conqueror very difficult. And here's why: if you look at her conquering of Slavers Bay in pure isolation, assessing only her attempts to fulfill her goals of. you know, taking cities, and if you put everything else aside, then yes, on the surface, she is a great success. She comes to Slaver's Bay with very little and goes from Astapor to Yunkai to Marine, makes herself queen of the latter... In doing so, she proves to the reader she's an adept problem solver who knows how to harness her military capabilities to get the result she wants. There's ingenuity on display at every turn and she tears through the area with great haste before her opponents really know what they're up against. In this sense, her intuitive style of conquering, making up her plans as she goes along, is a great asset. Her spontaneity is a weapon, and we saw in Astapor an example of that with her Dracarys moment. However, when we view the situation with a wider lens and we sort of pan out a bit, her conquest does look less impressive. The same spontaneity that she used against her foes later causes her herself problems for example the decision to dismantle her ships to fashion siege weapons really looked like a stroke of genius but further down the line the absence of those same ships allowed carth to blockade the bay outside of marine adding to the city's woes that were mounting already she was in such a rush that she left Astapor with very little defence, which has come back to bite her big time. And we'll talk talk more later about the problems she's faced as a ruler, but I think many of them can be traced back to her style of conquering. So although Danny's hasty march through the bay was effective and successful on her own terms, her methods have caused a multitude of problems in the aftermath the lack of a long-term plan is the key problem. Surely successful conquest includes a relatively smooth aftermath and Danny's rule has been fraught with problems, as we all know. Aegon the Conqueror, Lady Gwynne was talking about him, he spent years planning his conquest and consequently the transition into power was less problematic. So Danny would be very wise to take a leaf out of his book her forebear's book as she looks towards Westeros to invade. And in spite of Danny's ambition to invade Westeros, as her forebear Aegon the Conqueror did hundreds of years ago, Danny decides to stay in Marine and rule as Queen. However, she soon finds herself confronted by a web of complex political problems which do make her life as a ruler extremely difficult. So I'm going to ask you guys, what are some of these problems that Dunning's had to face and what has she done to resolve them thus far? Why don't we start with Mary?
3: Well, there sure are a lot of problems. I want to focus on the way she resolves the disputes in her Marinese court. I know it sounds a little dry, but one, court literally is for resolving problems. Uh, And two, one scholar of law and literature called law the master trope for human judgment. So it's not only important for getting into Danny's vision of justice and leadership, but court is also a test of Danny's judgment in the broader sense. Um, in her first two dance chapters, Danny resolves at least nine different legal disputes. So we learn she's no Robert Baratheon, who, to paraphrase, eats and leaves it to a hand to uh, deal with the consequences. In her court, she struggles mightily to be fair and impartial while addressing both the violence caused by her freedmen and the dragons, as well as the lingering injustice caused by Marine's slave economy. Uh, One thing that's notable to me is that she alternates between freedmen and masters when hearing petitions. She also very rigorously enforces a blanket pardon for violence caused during the sack of Marine. And she also listens and eventually memorizes the arguments presented by masters about the fighting pits and guild labor rates. None of these are particularly sexy. I mean, particularly not Hesdar. But they are all things that Danny listens to intently. But recall that by the time she marries Hisdar, Dario has to cajole her into holding court. And it's clear that she has become exhausted and frustrated. And it's easy to relate court does seem futile most of the time uh and in for danny in particular the freedmen are continuing to be mistreated and are relatively powerless still the violence of the insurgent sons of the harpy it seems like it was only quelled by her uneasy marriage alliance with hisdar which has forced her to make concessions that compromise her vision of equality all the while, she's haunted by Drogon's murder of Hosea, just to name a few of her seemingly thousand problems. You know whether, she, whether and how she can remain committed to solving these problems you know, writ large and small over the long term is her real test. Um, you know, other people in the fandom have compared Danny's occupation of Marine to the Reconstruction era after the American Civil War, comparing, for example, the Sons of the Harpy to the KKK. Um, most modern historians view the Reconstruction as a failure. Despite war and legal change, de facto slavery and discrimination were, were not rooted out. So the takeaway for me here is, look, Danny has a monumental task facing Facing her, no matter how you characterize it.
1: You're bang on there, Mary. You made some great points, and it's really interesting to get your view of Danny's methods at court because I know that's your background. I want to focus on one aspect that you mentioned the problem of Drogon killing Hazir. Danny's conquest of Slaver's Bay began with Drogon's fire, and a lot of Danny's clout comes from the fact she has three growing dragons. Yet, Danny has raised the dragons instinctually and doesn't quite know what to do with them. She locks Viserion and Rhaegal up in a makeshift dragon pit within the Great Pyramid because as a leader she wants to protect her people. But as with a lot of the problems she faces, as queen she finds herself in a Catch-22 with the two dragons out of sight and Drogon free she has lost her greatest deterrent and soon Brown Ben Plum turns the second sons to the Yonkish as a direct result, which is a significant blow to her. I do think this is a great example of Danny's problems in Marine, because no matter what she does, she finds herself in a similar bind. She makes genuine sacrifices and attempts, I'd say most of the time, to do the right thing. This is excellent writing from George. There's a degree of realism in the difficulties Danny faces as a a ruler. He's really not making it too easy for her. All of Danny's conundrums seem to overlap like some complex political web and layering these binds on top of one another allows George to explore his classic human heart in conflict with itself motif that he so dearly loves. What do you think, Lady Gwen?
2: Yeah, I think you guys have made great points about Danny's leadership style, how she handles her dragons. I want to focus on the Sons of the Harpy for a moment because there's some overlap there with both of those things. Early on, Danny takes child hostages from the Great Pyramids to ensure the good behavior of the wise masters. But she quickly shows herself to be unwilling to use those hostages to punish their families, and yes, that's a euphemism for killing children, but her reluctance certainly isn't unrelated to the death of Hazia that you just mentioned. Much like Ned Stark with Theon and later with Cersei's children, though Danny would hate that comparison, uh, her unwillingness to harm child hostages or even use them somehow to her own advantage makes her appear weak. Uh, she really would have been better served to take adult hostages or none at all. And this really strikes me as a situation where she could have capitalized on her strength, that is, her dragons instead chose to expose a weakness or what basically became a weakness in the form of her empathy uh, for these children. Uh, Empathy isn't always a weakness. It can be a strength, but it turns out it's not what this situation called for. And so we have here, you know, this sort of miscalculation in the way she's Dealt with the sons of the harpy, and now she's in really in a pickle. Because <laughs> how do you how do you back your way out of that once you've exposed your soft underbelly to your enemies?
1: Yeah, people in Slavers Bay would be keen to take advantage of any perceived weakness, like you know not wanting to kill children. Um, but but you make a great point that you know she could have got adult hostages, and it, it, they could have been had more meaning then. Um okay, so on to the next question. Danny's problems that we've highlighted in Marine come to a head when she's obliged to preside over the brutality of Daznak's pit. Following her impromptu flight from the pit on Drogon's back, Danny finds herself suddenly lost in the Dothraki Sea from out of nowhere. It's a complete change of scenery. So why do we think George chose to take her into the wilderness and what do we learn about her in that solitary chapter and i'll take the first go on this i I think removing queen danny from the bustle of city life with all its endless complexities to a position of solitude in the wilderness is a purposeful act of contrast by george danny found power in marine but she was so preoccupied with the endless dilemmas; it was difficult to advance her character. Now, Danny has been completely stripped of her power, and she struggles to sustain herself. Or, at one stage, even make a sun hat is giving her a, a lot of problems. It gives George the room to focus on her and grow her character. Danny has herself has the time and space in the Dothraki Sea to evaluate her rule in marine from a distance and there's every indication that she's gearing up to make crucial decisions that will shape the future of her arc and speak volumes about her character and goals going forward quaithe appears in the styler in the starlight to tell her to remember who she is and in her daydreams jorah reminds her that she is the blood of the dragon of course we know as readers that targaryens plant no trees and that Aegon Targaryen conquered Westeros so I find it likely that this journey into the Dothraki Sea is partially concerned with allowing Dany to make changes she was unable to make in the chaos and mayhem of the city. Being thrust into the wilderness is a great way to assess the mindset of a character and for that character to look at themselves and assess themselves as Dany does throughout the chapter.
2: What strikes me is that in Danny Ten we have almost an entire chapter with no external forces other than Drogon and the natural world until the very very end. Um, But while you know man versus nature is certainly a major theme of the chapter, the principal theme is man versus himself. Uh, Danny's entire point of view becomes inward as she considers what had happened in Marine, what would be happening in her absence what might happen when she returns she confronts her ghosts notably quaith and viserys and jorah and ponders the meaning of home the problem of her lack of control of her dragon we learn that she really misses nothing she figures out that the locusts were poisoned based on i mean her observations of strong Belwas, you know Getting sick must have happened almost concurrently with the dragon coming and really chaos breaking, breaking out. So I think that uh, it's pretty telling that she manages to untangle that piece of information. She yearns for home and she she realizes that Marine is not the home she's yearning for. It's the home she never knew. We learned that she misses Jorah. Of all things, she doesn't think negatively really about him. She, she's kind of sad and and misses her bear. Who knew? All of her thoughts, her dreams, her conversations with invisible people, they all point her in one direction, and that is fire and blood. And like I said, I said a little bit earlier, by the end, it seems like she's almost there. She's almost ready to finally embrace her heritage, but not quite. I think that she's got one more chapter Necessary, maybe not a literal chapter, but a chapter in her arc (laughs) before she gets to that point. But I think I think she's just about at the finish line.
3: Yeah, this is such a visceral chapter in every way. And I was struck by how resilient Daenerys is the whole time she is just getting up to follow that stream it's absolutely, I agree. It's a chapter of Danny versus herself. And one aspect of that is her physical body that's rebelling against her mind, all the while her mind is fighting with itself. And the other thing that, that kind of jumps out at me is that this is like a less glamorous mirror of Danny's final chapter in a Game of Thrones. Instead of birthing the dragons, here she is rebirthing herself. Not only does she likely literally have a miscarriage in this chapter. Um, The final image that we get of her standing in front of Cal Jocko, uh, I always say that wrong, Um, but it recalls her state after Drogo's funeral pyre. Um, She's standing here in in this same sort of half-burnt, half-naked way. Um, And so in the last chapter, she strikes off her tow car before she mounts drogo in the pit and now she stands unburnt but scoured physically battered but mentally reborn and ready to keep going
1: excellent i enjoy all these points about that chapter it really is you know quite refreshing for the reader to be put in a different place as well you know danny's uh, like I said, it's an active contrast, but the re- the reader really feels, wow, I'm really removed from all that sort of viper's nest atmosphere of marine. So yeah, I think that's a really, one of the standout Danny chapters. Okay, moving on, after days of wandering alone through the endless grass, Danny is finally found by Carl Jaco. In spite of Drogon's presence, Danny might still be vulnerable uh, as there are still question marks within that chapter about exactly how much control she has over the dragon. Danny's fate is therefore left open as a cliffhanger ready to be resolved in the winds of winter. So simple question, what do we think happens next? Um, I'll kick this off. My guess, I've talked about this in the primer and probably elsewhere because it's a view that I've had for quite a while and I haven't really shifted from it. But my guess is that Daenerys, one of the Winds of Winter, could begin with Danny on a way back to Vase Dothrak as Carl Jaco's captive, which, you know, a lot of P- Danny fans don't like the sound of, but bear with me. I, I think we'll see what happened at the end of her last dance chapter in a flashback as, as she's sort of on the way traveling to Vase Dothrak. It makes sense to me that George would disempower Danny as much as possible during the early Winds chapters because it would lay the groundwork for a rising empowerment arc through the novel. We're repeatedly reminded of the Dothraki tradition of Khaleesi being obliged to see out the rest of their lives in... Dothrak, when their husband has died. So you do have to wonder why George designed the Dothraki culture like this. Was it pure world-building? Possibly. Or did he have a plot point in mind? Danny effectively belonging to other people once more fits the theme of going back to go forward, as does returning to Vase Dothrak. From there, I think we'll see the strength of her character and she will rise to power, fulfil prophecy and turn her dire situation on its head as she tends to. This makes more story sense to me than simply Drogon roasts Carl Jaco at the offset and she unites the Dothraki without too much opposition. There is far less drama in that story, although I'm not counting out completely. I just think that it... It makes less sense to me. So I'm of the opinion that Drogon flies off as Jaco arrives and Danny is forcibly taken back to the Dothraki capital to live out the rest of her years as a crone. But for Carl Jaco, it's only delaying the inevitable. Danny will make him pay later down the line for his crimes against Eroa, and Danny's empowerment will come from within her and it will feel thoroughly earned, I think, in this eventuality, there is potential for the brand of exciting mayhem only Daenerys can deliver. And, yeah, that's why I like the idea. G- g- you know, she's pushed back to being nothing again and then she sort sort of reacts and takes the place over or what have you. What do you think, Lady Gwynne? Do you agree or have you got a different opinion?
2: No, I, I agree. I agree 100%. For me, this feels so much like something George would do. He leaves us with this tremendous cliffhanger scene of Danny facing her enemies with her dragon at her side, only for her dragon to fly away in the next scene. Danny Ten is full of references to how she can't truly control Drogon and how he does whatever he wants, even when when he lets her ride on his back. And Danny Ten also mentions, uh, when she first sees that one Dothraki rider, it mentions, you know, and she's thinking about how Khaleesi are brought back to Vase Dothrak, to the Dash Kaleen. So, you know, I think all in all, maybe things are pointing in that direction. You know, as much as her lonely odyssey at the end of A Dance with Dragons seems like a fall from grace, and you might think that she's hit rock bottom. In that chapter, she actually thinks repeatedly about how she's happy out there. She's she's loves riding the dragon, and she's gotten away from it all. It's kind of like a like Club Med for I don't know. She's just having a a break from everything. She's really trying to get back to Marine because that's what's expected of her, and she has all these people that depend on her. And you know, Danny always does what's expected of her. Uh, she wants to take care of her people. So I think. For her Winds of Winter arc to feel really satisfying, she has to hit rock bottom, not where she is now, further down. I think she has to get there and then ascend up from there. I've probably mentioned here more than once, maybe in an episode or maybe in a live stream, the man and hole story arc, which was defined by Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, here is his explanation. He says it needn't be about a man or a hole. It's simply this. Somebody gets into trouble gets out of it again and it's not accidental that the line or the arc ends up higher than where it began because this is encouraging to reading and while he's doing this he's actually drawing a line that goes drops down and goes up there like a giant check mark but simply i think in the winds of winter the dothraki are going to be danny's hole
3: that's so interesting and perfect. And it, it leads into a little digression I have about the Dash Kaleen and and whether they're just this word world-building element of Dothraki culture. And and in particular, what I think is interesting is that this element that the Dash Khaleen have very rigid gender roles that literally result in imprisonment. Because that same idea comes up elsewhere in George R. R. Martin's writing, specifically in his first novel, Dying of the Light. Which is, by the way, very much about people's identity crises. Women are are dubbed Ein Kethi and locked up in caves, save for reproductive purposes. And so I think the Ein Kethi and the Dosh Killeen serve a similar thematic purpose for George. And while I know this is extremely literal, it is to give his female characters a gender prison to overcome. To illustrate as vividly as possible that... The cultural forces that tell not only women, but any person what they can and cannot be are a metaphorical kind of prison. So Danny's confrontation with Jocko and eventually the Dosh Killeen, to bring it back to the man in a hole story, well, they represent the whole as cultural constraints. And and metaphorically, the cultural constraints that Danny is butting up against they're not just those of the death rocky and marine and westeros all of these uh, all of these different cultures tie danny's hands and impact how she's perceived um so broadly i think what she does in vase dothrak is going to foreshadow her barrier and norm breaking both broadly and then with respect to her gender specifically one thing that's on my mind is you know maybe breaking the rule that no woman can sit the iron throne
1: Yeah, excellent points. And it seems all three of us in our agreement that it's going to be a sort of exciting and uplifting story that we can all look forward to that's going to, like you say, Mary, break some boundaries and, you know, challenge some in-world beliefs and turn things on its head, which, you know, that's classic Danny. So, yeah, I like it all. Okay, so let's talk about well, it seems that like it seems likely to me and to other members of the fandom that one way or another Danny will revisit Vae's Dothrak and end up uniting the Dothraki and binding them to her cause from there, she must return to Marine with her new army and confront the problems that she left behind because she can't just. You know, she she can't just be a leader that is seen to run away, can she? That's not going to be satisfying for anybody. So, Marine will have gone through a lot of changes in her absence, given that a great war has broken out outside the city gates. So, my question is: When Danny returns with this huge host at her back, what exactly will Danny be returning to in the city of Marine? Why don't you start us off, Mary?
3: Yeah, we just talked about the upward trajectory of her story arc. And so I think from a meta perspective, you can't have everything coming up Danny. So at least some of Danny's potential allies have to have lost, left, or switch sides. Uh, emotionally, I think too, in terms of what George R. R. Merton has hinted at through the House of the Undying prophecies, through Quaith, um, she's going to return to something like betrayal. And if not betrayal, she's going to have new allies that she will have a very hard time trusting. And I suspect in terms of politics, it's going to be chaos with everyone who is there vying for her attention. So here's where you insert the Elmo bringing on the fire gif. this is the bad kind of mayhem. There are serious problems that that are going to be going on in Marine and I just do not have a lot of hope that the likes of Barristan Tyrion, Brown Ben Plum, Victorian Greyjoy and two riderless dragons are going to somehow solve them without Daenerys there.
1: Yeah. I think Mary's observation that Marine will likely be in chaos is a great call. I can't see any other way that things are going to proceed. There are just so many factors to consider in the area, and they all revolve around Danny. There's currently a huge war raging outside the city walls. So, how much of this conflict will be resolved before Danny's return? There's all of the problems Danny escaped from within the city, which don't seem close to being resolved. While the war is being fought, what exactly is happening in the city? Will Skahaz make a play for, play for further power while nobody is looking? Because remember, he's in, within the walls. How will his darby treated? Well, Skahaz might have something to say about that. And we'll we'll talk more about this soon. But what about the characters who have journeyed all the way to Marine? It just goes on. What about the pale mare? You could just go on, go on, naming all these problems it does seem like chaos will envelop the city during the aftermath of the battle of fire given the void in leadership in danny's absence and then danny is likely to arrive with tens of thousands of uh, dothraki at her back all of this is making my head spin so i think it's fair to say that danny will have to make major decisions decisively and without pause she is going to have to decide who to trust and she's going to have to bring a sense of justice to the city sharpish given we've been talking about how danny is rediscovering her fire and blood in the dothraki sea i think expect her to be more ruthless than ever before as she seeks to restore order in marine as quickly and as neatly as is humanly possible what do you say lady Gwynne?
2: well you know danny's going to get back to marine she's going to find jorah's back Brown Ben Plum is back. Possibly his Dar is dead. We talked about that in the Primer episode. It seems like a strong possibility. Who knows what will have happened with Dario? Maybe dead. Uh, you know, things things are going to have changed. And, and I mean, you've got Miss Andai and Strong Bellwass are, are going to have to weather whatever happens inside Marine during the battle. Uh, who knows? Who knows what the fate of, of some of her close family people uh, is going to be. So, in addition, since she left the city, uh, the Dornish prince is dead, killed by her dragons, who have now been freed, roaming the air above the city. Parts of said city are a smoking ruin. A huge battle has been fought outside her gates, where she's in the Dothraki Sea thinking, oh, surely the Yunkish have left. <laughs> I married his dar for peace, after all, right? They've probably gone home by now, right? Nope. Then, then there's going to be all these newcomers to contend with: a Lannister of all things, a Greyjoy, and uh, a Red Priest, uh, all of whom we're going to talk about in a moment.
1: <laughs> yes, let's talk about all the intersections. We we have brushed upon this before in the other live streams, but there's just so many potential meetups that we can delve in again marine has become a hive of intersections while she's been away in the dothraki sea as well as the many characters danny will be reacquainting herself with upon her arrival in the city there are also those who have travelled far and wide to meet her Which of these potential intersections are you guys looking forward to? And how will she deal with the many characters who will be desperate to interact with her? So I say we just pick one or two characters each, guys, and give give us a lowdown. I'll, I'll begin. Danny's no doubt gonna have her work cut out for her when she comes back to Marine, or rather George will, giving he will be spinning plates trying to balance the narrative around all the upcoming intersections. But surely one of the most hotly anticipated meetups is for Danny is with Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion is a major, major character with many chapters, so his importance to the plot And the overall saga cannot be overstated. He spent the entirety of Dance travelling to her and suffered greatly when he was enslaved. Like I said, George is not going to have endless room for a long introduction. So from a writing perspective, he will want to make a meeting with these two really hit home. From Danny's perspective, she will need some convincing that Tyrion is a person she can trust, given her natural suspicion of anything Lannister. Tyrion will have to be in his absolute best form to grab her attention quickly and convince her of his worth. But Tyrion does have a few things working in his favour here. First of all, with two dragons roaming the skies and another barely under her control – Danny desperately needs help preparing them for a long voyage on wooden ships and the subsequent invasion, obviously. Tyrion is an avid reader who knows much and more about dragons, so he can certainly help her. It's been set up for a long time that Tyrion has this great knowledge, and that's exactly what she needs. Next is the fact that he spent time with Aegon, John Connington and company. Danny will surely be desperate to know more about Aegon, given her lack of living relatives. It's anyone's guess how she'll react to the details that Tyrion will offer her. And it's exciting to consider what exactly he'll tell her, given he was a large part of the reason Aegon decided to strike West. So don't expect him to be wholly honest about everything. And last but not least, Danny will be looking to enlist Westerosi characters to her cause. Those with an inside knowledge of King's Landing will be highly valuable to her, and she would be foolish to spurn any offer of help from Tyrion in this regard. She does have Barriston, sure, but in Tyrion, she has someone who, as Hand, contemplated the defence of the city very deeply and so he knows every strength and weakness there is to know it's going to be a meeting of two sharp minds when these two characters are on the page and it's no wonder that fans have been looking forward to this interaction for many years now the moment we see these two together it's just going to going to be enthralling i cannot wait Hopefully, we'll get a scene where Danny introduces Tyrion to the dragons, which would be great to see from his POV. There's a lot to look forward to with this intersection, and even though we can assume that Tyrion will find a way to become important to Danny, how this unfolds will be intriguing, given George has got the option of covering their interactions from both sides, with the reader being privy to their private thoughts and opinions and so on. So... We're going to find out what they make of each other, and that will be fascinating. What do you say, Mary? Who are you looking forward to?
3: Yeah, um, I'm really excited about Makoro, as well as any other agents of the Red Temple. Uh, Part of this is because I really want to know what is up with Dragonbinder. But the, the deeper part of it is that I'm fascinated by how Daenerys is going to interact with the religion that literally believes she's the legendary savior Azor Ahai. On one hand, it's possible Dany doesn't love the tactics of the Red Temple. They brand their acolytes as slaves of relore, plus Makoro seems to have allied with the vile Victorian Greyjoy. Seems to have. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the principles of Danny and the Red Temple, they harmonize, so an alliance seems almost inevitable. The Red Temple's preaching a kind of liberation theology that we know is fomenting slave uprisings in Volantis that we suspect might spread to the incoming Volantine naval fleet. Not only does this massive ground-level support have tremendous implications for Danny's potential political and military power, it's bound to have a huge impact on her identity. I can also imagine that Martin was familiar with the Catholic liberation theology movement, whose focus on justice for those living in poverty helped give birth to Nicaragua's Sandinista revolution in the 80s. Incidentally, there's a lot of similarities in the religious imagery of the Red Temple's Azorah High mythos and Catholics preaching liberation, who in that time period called rebels guardian angels with fiery swords. Uh, so I'm really interested to see uh, see if those parallels develop. Um, and up to this point in the story, Daenerys has thought of herself as a Misa, not as a literal messiah. So her relationship with Makoro and the ideology he represents are likely to be just as revealing as Stannis' relationship with Melisandre was. In Stannis, the lawful right to the Iron Throne and the religious mantle of Azora High merge to an, into an often frightful righteousness and inflexibility. So, how much will her arc echo Stannis? Will Danny trust the powerful Makoro at the expense of her more earthly advisors? If Danny is paired with a more powerful Red Priest and an army of fervent Relorists, For better or worse, that's likely to impact her military priorities, her tactics, and her sense of power and place in the world. Martin's clearly playing with the chosen one trope here. And Makoro, and perhaps Marwyn as well, are primed to show us how being the chosen one will bring balance to the force. I I mean, drive Danny's story.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned Marwyn. Someone in the chat also mentioned Marwyn and, uh... We did We don't have a lot going on here with Marwin, but he. I think he's going to be very important to her because he has the uh, potential to bring her a lot of knowledge about her background, which is lacking with a lot of her other advisors. So, I actually am very much looking forward to what happens with that particular intersection. And we mentioned this in the uh, episode, but timeline-wise, everything should be primed for him to be kind of arriving. Very soon after the battles, so so looking forward to that. But the other thing I want to know, I want to talk about, is how on planetos do do we suppose Danny's going to react to Victarion Greyjoy? I mean, he's basically a Westerosi pirate who has designs on her dragons, and I don't think he's going to be particularly good at hiding that. In fact, you know it. If I know Uncle Vicky, he's gonna. If he meets Stanny, he's gonna roll in and just say, "I'm here to marry you and take you and your dragons (laughs) back to Westeros." Again, someone who wants to use her, and I think we've discussed that she's about all done with that. So, pretty also, there's pretty much nothing that her chief advisors, Barristan, maybe Jorah and Tyrion. And even Marwen, if he shows up, are going to tell her about the Ironborn and House Greyjoy that will inspire any sort of confidence or interest in what he can offer her, except for his ships and the horn. So, you know, in Danny 10, when she's thinking about her lack of control of Drogon, it says the dragon lords of old Valyria had controlled their mounts with binding spells and sorcerous horns. And since she'll no doubt see her lack of knowledge on how to control the dragons as a problem, you know, when Drogon flies away and leaves her with the Dothraki or when she gets back and finds the other two dragons just kind of flying loose above the city and making nests willy nilly in the pyramids or wherever they like, I think she's going to find that her lack of knowledge, you know, that, she she needs to change that, and if she does find out that Victorian is in possession of one of these horns that she was just thinking about, she'll pretty much I think be interested in what he's offering. Not the marriage part though. <laughs> the more likely scenario is that she sees or hears what happens when Victorian tries to use the horn and is faced with the puzzle of how to safely use it herself. Without the necessary sorcery to instruct her, because uh, you know it's possible Makoro has some knowledge in that direction, or he may claim uh, that he does, as he's done with Victorian, and might attempt to instruct her. But I'm pretty sure that his his three surrogates are going to die if they go in, if they follow Victorian's plan. I don't think those three are going to live, and if Victorian tries to go ahead and have a go himself well that's probably not going to go very well either uh so i don't think that danny's going to take kindly to his efforts or intentions to bind one of her dragons to himself and since we're going to have an overabundance of point of view characters in the region we know some of our point of views are going to be killed off in the winds of winter i think whether victorian dies from trying to use the horn itself, or if he's roasted by Danny, he's not going to survive to become part of her court or indeed part of the group that heads back towards Westeros with her. Uh, You know, everything he's brought to Slaver's Bay that she needs for her story to continue are things, the ships, the horn. And these are things that she can freely take once he's out of the way. So, you know, I think Victarion's Short-lived, but I do look forward to some interaction between the two of them, just for uh, comedy's sake.
1: <laughs> I love that you call him Vic or Vicky. That's just, it just feels humiliating, which I love.
2: Uncle Vicky, I'm sorry. <laughs> he really does deserve every bit of it, doesn't he? <laughs> he deserves that. He deserves that humiliation.
1: <laughs> okay, so why don't we tie up the conversation about Marine before we sort of look to the West in spite of Danny's ambition to rule as Queen of Marine and install peace within the city, Danny's true calling lies with the Iron Throne in Westeros, which she b- believes is rightfully hers. But if she abandons Slaver's Bay without due care, she will be betraying all of those associate who call her miser. So what can Danny do? To leave Marine with all its problems in a position of stability and prevent her interjection in the area, seeming like a failed leadership practice exercise. So, because none none of us want that, do we? So I, I think this is a really interesting question because the notion of Danny abandoning her people in Marine to instead strike West could undermine the rest of a story if it wasn't done well it would be unforgivable and it, it could taint her character in the readers minds forever and would be off-putting for those of us who have become immersed in the complexities of marine it might also feel like a writing cop out from george building up all these problems and then you know not having a resolution and then moving on i think that would be grossly unsatisfying so for these reasons I think he must have some sort of resolution in mind that would be more harmonious than just sort of jumping ship. At the same time George has gone to great lengths to instill realism in Miranese politics. Danny can't change everything overnight these problems were deeply ingrained before she came let's not forget. So she's unlikely to swoop in and miraculously solve everything in double quick time. Instead, it's likely that she'll have to make compromises as she has done through her political tenure. And we might be left with a bittersweet taste in our mouths. I think George likes that bittersweet taste. He's mentioned it quite a few times. So overall, don't expect either a complete abandonment or a perfect resolution. Danny will have to find a way to create a strong foundation for the city in order to continue to fight slavery and ensure that the slaver villains will never get their, never again get the power that they crave. And one point that came to me when I was thinking about this live stream that I've never said before, and I haven't seen it said elsewhere, so maybe this is a new idea, maybe maybe not, maybe it's out there. But We've talked about Danny bringing the Dothraki to Westeros. You know, we're talking about perhaps bringing, you, you know, most of the Dothraki people over the water. An act which in itself, if you think about it, is going to help destroy the slave trade. And choosing an appropriate, trustworthy team is, is another thing. You know, she's going to have to leave behind a good government as well and that decision will be paramount so what do you think lady gwen what about this notion of the dothraki you know w- without them does the does the slave trade function in their absence does do the slavers does everything fall apart for the slavers
2: yeah no i think that is a, a great idea so I'll, I'll pick up on how taking the dothraki west might effectively end the slave trade, or at least eviscerate it. You know, they certainly aren't the only people capturing and selling slaves in Assos, But, and of course the Giscari cultures are have and some of the other associated city uh, cities that have slavery have specialized in breeding slaves, but you know as one of the main transporters of captured peoples to slavers' markets, the Dothraki are kind of the equivalent of the ships of the Middle Passage in real life. You know, without them, most of the trafficked humans don't reach the marketplace. And, and one thing many of us have learned in real life over this past year through various, you know, shortages and slowdowns of of goods and services, is that when logistics break down, for whatever reason, so does commerce. So, you know, essentially the institution of slavery in Essos is a commercial venture uh, upon which numerous social and cultural institutions depend. And once economies start to break apart, there's room or even necessity for radical change. And this is hinted at when Danny meets with Sarozo and Daxos in A Dance with Dragons, and she thinks about the history of the region of Slaver's Bay that she learned from Galaza Galare. So I have a passage here. It says, For centuries, Marine and her sister cities, Yunkai and Astapor, had been the linchpins of the slave trade, the place where Dothraki calls and the Corsairs of the Basilisk Isles sold their captives, and the rest of the world came to buy. Without slaves, Marine had little to offer traders. Copper was plentiful in the Giscari Hills, but the metal was not as valuable as it had been when bronze ruled the world. The cedars that had once grown tall along the coast grew no more, felled by the axes of the old empire or consumed by dragonfire when geese made war against Valyria. Once the trees had gone, the soil baked beneath the hot sun and blew away in thick red clouds. The Green Grace says, it was these calamities that transformed my people into slavers, and Danny thinks of herself as the calamity that will turn the slavers back into people. So certainly disassembling the wheel that makes the slave trade operate, uh, will be as radical as the changes that came to that region after the wars with Valeria. So yeah, I really think you you hit that right on that nail right on the head. We we can't underestimate uh what a big, huge change that's gonna be in the region.
3: Yeah, y'all, y'all save me from going into like a very long uh, exp- explanation of historical materialism and how that meant we had to uproot slavery before we could make any significant changes. Because this is a big, I mean, I think this observation from both of y'all is a perfect example of the way that economic forces shape history and power. And in particular, the role that the Dothraki play in that whole economic system. And so I, I just, I can't agree enough with the fact that that's Part of what Danny is going to do. And that I think is the very reason that she stands uh, in front of Cal Jaco, because her intent is to return and get the Dothraki in order to end the slave trade. I I think that is literally what Daenerys is, one of the things Daenerys is thinking um, when she wants to reclaim the Kallisar. Um So. I mean, to speak further to the point of radicalism, I think anyone living in reality realizes that some economies, governments, and justice systems are just so fundamentally broken and built on inequality that incremental political compromise within that system isn't going to work. Um, and while I think Danny's correct that the power base has to fundamentally change and perhaps violently in marine. I'm conflicted about whether Danny herself can make the kind of changes to that power base that will secure justice for Marine in the long haul. On one hand, if we run the best-case scenario of 3D chess or Cyvas, she has a really good chance of coming out of the battle of fire with military, economic, and political advantages. If she gains not only the Calisar but the Valentine fleet ends up aiding her cause, she might well be in a position to leave behind some unsullied and volunteer forces to defend Marine on land and sea. If she gains trustworthy political allies in the soon to be freer cities, she can also find trading partners and naval resources to help prevent future blockades. Um, and while Danny is brilliant in her own right, as y'all have pointed out, Tyrion would be a great asset in this kind of game. But on the other hand, if Daenerys' goal is a politics of liberation rather than power, she not only has to smash the slave trade, but give the people of Marine, not even mentioning the rest of Essos, a chance at political, economic, and personal autonomy. Daenerys' failure in Astapor is not just that she leaves the city undefended, it's that the Butcher Kings arise after her departure. Um... I'm reminded of a meme that's based on Paulo Fieri's pedagogy of the oppressed. All right, so picture a cat that's being bitten by a toy alligator, followed by a picture of a cat wearing an alligator costume. Uh, And the caption is a quote from Fieri, which is, When education is not liberating, the dream of the oppressed is to become the oppressor. And so to simplify what Fieri argues... Oppressed people, in order for oppressed people to become liberated, they not only need to unlearn what their oppressors have taught them, justice is, but they need to learn that from their peers, not from the powerful, and not from a single ruler dictating it on high. And in so many ways, this distills for me, not only the problem of Daenerys liberating Marine, but also of the cycles of violence in which Daenerys finds herself trapped. So long as she plays the Game of Thrones, the game's first her brother, and now all her advisors are telling her to play, she will embrace an oppressive power politics, and she cannot be a liberator in the true sense. She's a dragon, getting bitten by a dragon, in a dragon costume. Um, And, of course, there's not a happy answer to the question of what liberatory politics are, um, particularly in the context of A Song of Ice and Fire. Sure, it would be better for Daenerys to set up a governing council made up of Marinese people elected through free and fair elections under the one-person-one-vote principle. On one hand, there is a precedent for some form of elections all over the place in the story. Bravos, the Ironborn King's the Wall, even Volantis. Uh, But on the other hand, we know as modern readers that even we do not have free and fair elections figured out. Liberation and education, as Fieri envisions them, they cannot be truly legislated, but must be learned and practiced. None of this is to say that Danny should give up. But instead, I think that George R. Martin has channeled so many of the real world events that he lived through, um, like Vietnam, from which he consciously objected to the war in Iraq that waged while he wrote this book. And it's really given us an insightful, complex view of Daenerys and her dilemmas as an outsider employing force, often fiery force, in the name of freedom.
1: So many uh, great points you make, Mary. Thanks for, for these insights. Fantastic stuff. Okay, we've got a couple of questions left. So why don't we look west Assuming Danny begins her voyage west in the Winds of Winter, sailing home with a huge diverse host at her back, it's going to be a complex logistical exercise involving many ships and vessels. But the journey home is very long, and Danny might cho- choose to anchor at a port on the way home to restock and refresh. So, a simple question: Where might Danny seek to disembark, and why? What do you think, Mary?
3: Well, I think the smart money is probably on Volantis, but but if you'll indulge me, I think Bravos is another possibility with a lot of thematic significance. For one, it's the location of. Danny's iconic House with the Red Door, but also the founding of the story of Braavos is a story of refugees, of escaped slaves from Valeria, who founded a free society whose most important law is no slavery. Plus, Braavos and the Iron Bank are rich, and Fire and Blood tells us they helped bankroll Jaehaerys and Alisane's improvements of King's Landing, for example. So I would want them as allies if I were Daenerys. But on the other hand, The city and its not-so-friendly Guild of Assassins might not be enthusiastic about the return of dragons to the world, Um, but the reason I like Bravos as a potential waypoint is it gives Danny the chance to cross paths also with Arya slash Kat slash Mercy's friends. You know, who knows, but I I think this would be a fun chance to pull some different parts of the story together while interweaving various different themes.
2: Yeah, I love that idea. You know, I I also wonder if, you know, if she's continuing to target the institution of slavery, you know, it would be Volantis. But also, if she has any thoughts of Magister Illyrio or fulfilling Barristan's promise to the Tattered Prince, for instance, if that's even still a thing, it might also be Pentos. Although, to be honest, both Pentos and Bravos are a lot further north than where she technically has to go. So unless she's also considering going elsewhere in Westeros than where we think I'm getting ahead of myself, <laughs> you know, I suppose it, it depends what it, her destination in Westeros is. One thing that occurs to me though, is that if she intends to land anywhere other than Dorne or the reach in Westeros, that is she's going to have to pass through the step stones currently occupied by pirates, including one who goes by the name of the Lord of the Waters, and the Golden Company, her ostensible nephew Aegon's army, or at least part of it. So, you know, if she happens to stop off in the Stepstones, things could get really interesting at that point.
1: Is she going to end up with Cersei's ships?
2: Yeah, I never really thought about that. I had called them for Aegon, but, um, you know, Orain Waters... Has kind of a Dario wish feel to him. So who knows? (laughs) I would, I would, I would approve.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Cersei certainly enjoyed his purple eyes, didn't she? Enough to trust him with the (laughs) Dramonts. Okay. So, yeah, that does lead us in quite nicely to the final question of the day. One of the first key decisions Danny will be required to make as she plans her conquest of Westeros is where exactly to land her forces. She needs to find the most advantageous setting to begin her campaign with a plume. So where will Danny land? What advantages will she find there? And why do you guys think this would be her best option? Lady Gwynne, why don't you begin us?
2: Well... I, I really think it has to be Dragonstone because I mean you've got the symbolism of her returning home to her ancestral home, family fortress, the place she was born. It's the place that her conquering ancestor, that she has so many similarities with, began his invasion of Westeros, and it's conveniently empty at the end of a dance with dragons. I mean, there's you know maybe a small garrison left by the Tyrell Lannister army that cleaned out Stannis's slightly larger garrison but you know I, I don't think there's going to be any effective defense there for one thing the tyrells and lannisters are not going to be looking for trouble there uh, you got stannis in the north uh, aegon in the south the ironborn are off in the west who expects anyone coming from the east plus you have danny 10 of a dance with dragons where you know she's adrift in the dothraki sea in the beginning she's staying at the hill where drogon has made his lair Uh, It says it's a stony island in a sea of green. And she names the hill Dragonstone and recognizes that it's become Drogon's home. It says, "Danny knew the lure of home. So besides encapsulating one of the main themes of her arc in six words, I think that sentence sets us up for how perfect it will be if the Winds of Winter ends with her arriving at the real Dragonstone, also a stony island in a sea of green home at last Uh, only it's pretty likely that 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 homecoming is probably going to be unsatisfactory in the way that dreams and fantasies once fulfilled often are. And I think that would nicely set up her conflict uh, for the final book.
3: It's really hard to argue with Dragonstone. I really think the only thing that that counsels against it right for me is I I wonder what the chances are of Daenerys learning about the threat of the Others and choosing to head north instead or being forced to go north instead are. I mean, of course, this can happen shortly after she lands on Dragonstone. Again, Stannis parallels. But I am really curious if for space and plot reasons, I mean, Danny has a lot to do in Essos, it seems, First, she might go somewhere like Red Harbor or I don't know, like wherever Jon Snow is. You know, maybe she will land, land on Dragonstone in the final chapters of the books, but it just seems to leave so much story left for a dream of spring. You know, speaking as a huge dork who's tried to pot, plot out all of the T-Wild POVs in order in a spreadsheet. I mean, just yikes. I'm open to possibilities because there's there's so much so much story to fit into this book.
1: I I, for my answer, I want to go back to what Lady Gwyn said at the end of her answer that she might go to Dragonstone. Danny might roll up on the shores of Dragonstone, thinking that she's found home, but it might not be quite what she thought. So, yeah, there's there's there has been much discussion about where she's going to land: the Vale, Dawn, or places near King's Landing being mentioned in the fandom for as long as I've been you know on the forums and the boards reading about it people have speculated however Dragonstone looks right for the picking and given the numerous advantages it could hold I think if I was a betting man I'd, I'd put everything on Dragonstone <laughs> regarding the history Dragonstone is where the Targaryen dyn- dynasty effectively began Aegon the Conqueror used the island as his base George does enjoy this Echoing of the past, creating historical parallels, which then create deeper meaning to actions in the present. He's so good at that and he does it repeatedly. For Danny to be in the place of her birth, surrounded by the great blackened walls and statues that were made and forged with magic and Targaryen dragon flame, it would certainly provoke the theme of home for Danny, which, as we've discussed, is a central part of her character in an internal world. So if she does arrive at Dragonstone, it will be interesting to monitor Danny's internal dialogue and see if she truly feels at home in the historical Targaryen stronghold. You would think that on the surface, she would be delighted to immerse herself in family history. But don't forget how dark, dismal and depressing Dragonstone really is. In the Clash prologue, we really get this sense of exactly how grim life is on the Rock, and for all the advantages it holds strategically, there's also the chance that Danny finds herself disillusioned by the reality of Dragonstone. Danny's search for a feeling of home might not end with Dragonstone. It she it might be like Marine. She gets there and she thinks, "Well, this isn't home. Doesn't feel like home." The speculation about where Danny will land is usually focused on military and logistical analysis, but don't forget there's a human story in there. And if she lands on Dragonstone, Danny's internal and external reactions to her birthplace will be fascinating. Okay, guys, that is it for the analysis. Do stick around because we're going to talk to Mary. Thank you, Mary. You. Put in a great performance today. You had so many interesting things to say, and things that, uh, because of your legal background, that you know give, give a new, a fresh point of view that we, you know, haven't articulated ourselves. So many valuable points of view you've given us today. So thank you very much. Why don't you tell us about the Learned Hands podcast? What it's all about? What you're up to?
3: Sure, yeah. Again, thank you so much for thank you so much for having me. Uh, so Learn at Hand, so what is it? Uh it's the only A Song of Ice and Fire podcast hosted by two lawyers, uh at, at least we think it is. And I host it with the the brilliant and hilarious Clint of the Laughing Tree, uh, and we explore the political and ethical dilemmas in A Song of Ice and Fire with a legal lens. We are irreverent and frequently political. So if that's your sort of thing, you can find us at Learned Hands Pod on Twitter uh, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Maester Mary. And also I have a WordPress up from underwinterfell.wordpress.com. So we're in the middle of a series on the dance of the dragons. Uh, we will have an episode coming out within the next couple days about uh, Rhaenyra's ascent to the throne. Uh, we just did an episode on immigration and I think we're hoping next year we'll do a series on justice and forms of justice and punishment in a song of ice and fire, um, which I think will be again, really interesting. Uh, I have I kind of thought when we started this podcast, oh, we're going to run out of material. Like, how can you, how many laws are there in this book? And yeah, how how wrong was I about that?
2: It's true. It just seems to be endless material for all of us. Right? <laughs> we just love talking about this stuff. And uh, George has given us uh, a great well of material. So. Thank you so much for being here, Mary. And uh, thank you to everyone who is here watching, listening. Thanks to watchers and listeners in the future. The podcast version of this will be available uh, soon. And uh, yeah, so thanks all for being here. We appreciate you so much. What's going on with Radio Westeros is... We've been working on our own Dance the Dragon series along with History of Westeros. And as a, a companion to that, we just released an episode about the Red Kraken uh, that is out for patrons only. So uh, if you're interested in that. Uh, Check out our Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash Radio Westeros, and you can hear our episode about the Red Crack in there, along with some other patron-exclusive stuff. Uh, Coming right up now, uh, within the next uh, days, really, days, we're going to have an episode all about Kevin Lannister coming out for you. And that is what we're up to. So don't forget to like and subscribe before you leave us. Uh, Thanks again for being here
1: yeah you guys subscribe to the learned hands podcast and check out the kevin episode coming in the next week or 10 days or so you can get it earlier if you're a patron there's a tiered reward system on patreon so come and join us thanks to our discord mods and our chat room mods you guys do an invaluable job to make things tick over smoothly and Thanks to all our patrons, and yeah, check out our Patreon campaign. You can get, as well as early releases, shout outs, and all types of stuff. I hope you have enjoyed this look at Danny. This is the last of our Streams of Winter live streams, but we'll do more live streams. I, I'm thinking right now, Lady Gwynn, we could do a Kevin companion one, couldn't we? We could... There's many, there's many talking points that, you know, we can't cover everything in the standard episodes. No, so as long we, as we we'll make them. Yeah. We we'll, <laughs> we, we are up for, you know, trying to entertain you guys as much as we can, really. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. You guys have a great weekend and we'll see you soon.
2: Okay. Bye for now.